Let's get started by thanking our wonderful sponsors who make this show possible every week. We can't thank them enough. With more screen usage and indoor time, myopia, also known as nearsightedness, is increasing and getting worse in children. Now, certified eye doctors can prescribe my sight one day, the first and only FDA-approved soft contact lens to slow myopia progression in age-appropriate children. Visit coopervision.com to find a Brilliant Futures certified eye doctor near you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald. In this episode, Dr. Fitzgerald takes a deep dive into how brain trauma can affect the visual system and strategies used to help concussion patients. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. And we talked about convergence, which is about 50% of the people with a concussion will have some kind of convergence problem. The same with a combination, about 50% of the people. Explain what a combination is and how we could test for it to see if somebody's having a problem with it. So accommodation is where, of course, we're wanting to focus and get a clear picture, uh, either up close and then to relax it for far away. And so accommodations often been thought to be if you want to read something on a paper in order to get clear and single, the eyes, first of all, have to come in, they have to converge with the muscle. And then the focusing mechanism of the eye has to uh, ratchet it in like a magnifier, we'll call it. And so those systems all have to work well together. If either one of those systems is off even a little bit, a person's going to see double. They're going to have a foggy brain. They can be contributed to uh, memory loss. So uh, there, are, there are various different ways in order to do that. I don't start with near point of convergence. I don't start with pencil push-ups. And the reason I don't start with pencil push-ups is because I think it's a spatial problem. And so I keep my student athletes 18 inches out further open up their periphery. Oftentimes when I'm able to do that, their convergence and their accommodative issues go away because I've been able to solve some of the concussion affect. So you start therapy with periphery, not with central. And That's that may perfect. be one of the reasons why some of the studies have been mixed because they may be the starting with doing uh, uh, therapy for convergence rather than working on the periphery. Is that, would that be a correct statement? Yeah, close. So what ends up happening is we've got to find out symptom. You know, it's once again, it's symptom and symptom provocation. So let's find out where it is they're bothered and then figure out how we can get beyond that point. So if there's symptoms that they show that they're showing a large amount of symptoms because they're not sleeping, I got to get them sleeping. If they show a large amount of uh, symptoms uh, because of one thing or another, I've got to start there. So the number one thing I do is I get them sleeping. I give them uh, magnesium or a product calm that they take 20 minutes before they go to bed. I talk to them about sleep hygiene. I talk to them about different types of things. And then I never release, I never take a kid off of school, but I might do half a day's because there's already a lot of anxiety driven with them not being in school. Now let's talk about the big one, cicades. How are cicades affected? I mean, it's, it's very complicated because a lot of the brain is involved in cicades. And uh, how can we use cicades as help us in, in diagnosing diagnosing concussion, especially with like the King Devic test. Okay, so eye movements are definitely very complicated. And so what we've shown is that when someone has a brain that's not working well, that uh, pursuits and saccades uh, also do not work well. So the King Devic is able to be a sideline test 
um, to show what type of eye movement capability that student athlete has at that point in time. If they score lower than what they normally or the norm would score, we're concerned about whether or not they have a concussion. And so once again, that's where the eye and the brain come in to whether or not we can say sidelining a student athlete uh, for that particular concussion. We wanna be able to do pursuit and saccade um, rehab, but once again, that shows us there's a motor problem, a central line problem. So gait, balance, eye-hand coordination, all come into play to help with saccades and pursuits. And explain to the audience what a saccade is and what a pursuit is. Sure, so a saccade can be done, uh, well, first of all, it's moving from one object to the other. So uh, a saccade is if I had my thumb uh, out to one side, I'm looking at the thumb and then I wanna go over to the next target, that's a saccade, I'm moving over and it's a, it's a staccato type of motor activity. And so what ends up happening, a pursuit cannot be done without there being an object of interest to follow. And so when we're pursuing or scanning our periphery. And so they are in different places in the brain and you can have reflexive saccades and volitional saccades, which are different parts of the brain as well. Let's talk about the different visual pathways that are affected during uh, concussion. Talk about parvocellular, magnocellular. Uh, uh, tell us, how each one of them uh, will affect somebody and cause symptoms of it, uh, of their having a problem with that visual pathway. So the visual system has a multimodal pathway with a couple of them being magnocellular, which would be more the periphery, big picture, subconscious, preconscious uh, type of activity. And that's the one that's myelinated at birth. And then you have your, uh, which would also be considered ambient or dorsal stream, and then you have your focal uh, parvo system that's um, high resolution, slow, uh, detail, color, and they're in different parts of the brain, but they work together in order to give us our visual system. So can that help us if we're having trouble, say, with color or resolution, then we know it's affecting the parvocellular, which is usually what, 80% is affected in concussion? Sure. Um, How can that help us with, you know, with uh, diagnosis, you know, if someone's having trouble with, uh, with attention or concentration or uh, maybe speed? Well, I, I don't know if I'm understanding the question, but first of all, if I'm looking at eye movements, if they're unable to fixate, that's where I have to start. So if they have a lot of saccadic intrusions or eye movement or uh, oscillopsia with that, then I have to be able to get them to fixate. Um, I, I guess, once again, I'm taking a look at symptoms and then I use a different part of the brain. So the cerebellum uh, deals a lot with rhythm and timing and movement. And then you have the frontal lobe, which is your executive function. You have your superior colliculus is your map of the world. And then you have your inferior that uses sound. So what we know is if I need to move a saccade to move faster, if I use sound, I can get that saccade latency or that accuracy to be faster. So there are certain things within therapy we can get the eye movements to work better at. I think people don't realize that there are fibers 
from the eye and pathways from the eye that have nothing to do with vision. They actually- Yeah, 18%. And if you could explain that, the fibers that go to the midbrain and that don't have anything to do with vision and how it could affect circadian rhythm, especially if it's affecting the IP uh, RGC cells. <laughs> okay, well, uh, what ends up happening is brainstem um, has a lot to do with a lot of things, right? So that's our breathing, our movement, our heart rate, all those subconscious types of things. So if we have an injury, a, a concussion, which can have a brainstem affect to it, first of all, it's going to affect our breathing. It's going to affect our autonomic nervous system. And so the pupil is tied to that parasympathetic sympathetic system. And that's why it's gotten more traction to take a look at it. Um, and in addition to that, then you have the fight or flight. So if you have a person that could have a brainstem difficulty, they're gonna show a corneal, uh, a cranial nerve affect. So they're so tied together that once again, we have to figure out where in the brain this is happening and then what can we do in order to get that person to be better? So let's talk about post-traumatic uh, vision syndrome. What is it and what are the, some of the symptoms? So post-trauma vision syndrome was first um, elucidated to by Dr. Bill Padula. And what happened is in his studies and his work with people uh, with head injuries is that there was a cluster of things would occur. And so in that post-trauma vision syndrome, you have uh, the eyes operating in a certain fashion. So we might see more myopia. We might see uh, an eye turning out or in. We might see uh, a conative spasm. So these were all tied together uh, in someone getting a head injury. And if post-traumatic or post-trauma vision syndrome and cognition, how are they related? So uh, what we kind of think we know is that cognitive issues that persist after a concussion are unresolved vision distributor issues. And anxiety issues that pursue after a concussion are unresolved vision distributor issues. And anxiety is the same way. So vision and vestibular have a great affect on the upward part of the brain, the frontal, the cerebellum, that sort of thing, and also downward, the brainstem, uh, posture gate. So it's related in that fashion. And so it was a cluster of symptoms that showed up when people would have that kind of head injury. And focal binding, where uh, things are all crowded together. Can you talk about that phenomenon? Well, focal binding is more tied to, uh, and I use it simply, would be pencil pushups. So when people, uh, when certain uh, professions have someone that may have a receded NPC, their idea of treating that NPC, a receded NPC is to have them stare at a pencil and then move it uh, forward and backward until they're able to do that. The difficulty with that is that that's focally binding them. What they're doing is they're shutting down their peripheral system in order to try and get their central system to come online. And what we find is that most of these patients gets worse. Why? Because we need our peripheral vision in order to walk around in space. So I can't get from point A to point B if I'm looking through a toilet paper roll and suppressing my peripheral vision. I need my peripheral vision in order to get through the world. And is, this, is that something that's common with post-trauma or traumatic visual syndrome? Yes, absolutely common. That's why you do not want to start with pencil push-ups. You do not want to start with central visual tasks 
on an already disrupted peripheral vestibular system. Now, let's talk about sideline testing for concussion. Uh, so if you combine King Devic with the SCAT uh, test, how much does that, does that help us or combine it with one of the other tests like MACE or uh, one of the concussion diagnostic tests for an athlete that's on the sideline? Yeah, so out in the field, the King Devic plus a best test, which is a balance test, plus the SCAT, uh, which is that sports specific test, that's 100% diagnostic for a concussion. Explain how King, what the King Devic test is, how, how, how it's performed, and what the athlete has to do. And then if you could per, uh, explain the SCAT test. So the King Devic uh, uses three different challenges uh, using numbers. And what happens is the athlete needs to be able to call out those numbers as they're scanning across a page. And what happens is that if they are able, it's within five seconds of what they can do. Let's say they can do it in 11 seconds when they don't have a concussion. They did it in 18 after they got hit. We're probably gonna pull that student athlete from play because we feel as though the King Devic is showing us um, that they have a deficit in that. And uh, then the SCAT asks um, several questions and then uh, it also has them do some balance testing for the SCAT. I don't perform the SCAT. So as a result, I, I'm probably not as articulate about the SCAT. And how about like impact? Is that something that, uh, that you know, the immediate uh, post-concussion assessment, is that something that, that you work with other professionals on? Yeah, I'm CIC certified in impact testing and have been since 2010, which just means is the highest education they have for that. I, I believe I'm the only, only optometrist that has that. Um, the impact testing originally when I started using it like in 2007 and then greater in 2010 was absolutely the gold standard for cognition testing, neuro uh, psych testing uh, done on a web-based product. And so as a result, it was just another tool to the toolbox. And so it's still the gold standard for athletics in helping determine where we're at with getting that student athlete back to play. But there are other cognitive tests that are coming up the ranks. Uh, Cogniview, um, there's um, Brain Gauge, uh, there is um, CNS Vital Signs, there's CBS Health. So there's a lot of other ones out on the market that could possibly be used, but impact testing is the gold standard for athletes. And you mentioned return to play about 90% uh, of athletes could go back within three weeks. How can you tell when they're ready to go back? So first of all, that's a study. That's not what I do. So uh, what ends up happening is that the study says that uh, people will be resolved of their symptoms within 26 days. Um, that's not how I operate at all. So first of all, we uh, constantly are doing a symptom sheet rating, and then we do various different types of things in order to determine whether or not that student athlete can get to certain other levels to get up and out of play. So uh, one of them is their symptom uh, survey. How are they sleeping? How are they eating? Um, you know, how's their headache? What do they rate their headache at today? Then we'll put them through a symptom limiting movement, symptom limiting cognition. Uh, and then after we've had them in for about seven to 10 days, depending upon how severe the injury has been or the symptoms. And then I'll go ahead and do a treadmill test and we'll see on that treadmill test whether or not they're able to uh, do that. And so a lot of times the athletes might get to about the last three to five minutes their symptoms go up, they fail that treadmill test, 
we have to start over before we can get them out to play. That's very interesting. Now, what are the risk factors that for recovery? Are there certain risk factors that are more likely to recover quicker or recover slower? Well, if people have any type of um, mitigating difficulty, so first of all, if they're been, been diagnosed with a learning disability, perhaps it's a little harder to, to see where they might be at in the spectrum of getting better. ADD, ADHD, the medications, if there's a history of depression, if there is a history of a previous concussion. Uh, and we have the other types of things where if we have dizziness at the time of the injury, they might have a protracted recovery. If they have re uh, anterior or retrograde amnesia, that's gonna be a little bit different. Let's talk about the general principles of retraining these people. So now they've been diagnosed, they have the concussion, they're in your office. Let's talk about retraining and the team approach. Who's on the team to help these people? So I'm a little bit unique uh, from the standpoint as I like the view from the lead Husky. And what that means is, is that I uh, look at these student athletes uh, and I won't release them to the athletic trainer unless we've had a, uh, unless we built up a rapport or, or unless we figured out who's going to release them to play. So once again, everything is driven by symptoms and then their performance. And so as a result, then I might have, I just had a kid that came in uh, soccer uh, play. She got uh, cleated uh, right above her right eye, came in with a black eye. She had a vitreous heme in the back of her eye, did not have a retinal detachment. I had to watch her for that. So this was very interesting is that she had no other type of difficulty, but I had to treat her for a potential of a concussion. And I treated her for her retinal for the potential of a retinal tear. She had a vitreous heme. And what ended up happening is we can coincide those abilities together. And so I was able to release her to soccer play within three weeks. Talk about the pyramid of treatment. Uh, how do we, where do you look to start and where do we look to finish? when we're doing rehab, optometric rehab on these people? So I gotta look to see where they can start. So first of all, once again, uh, symptoms, take a score on their symptoms. I take a look at how quickly I can leave them in a puddle if I'm doing cognitive testing, if I'm doing balance testing. So we have to do vision, vestibular, balance, cognition, and then I do uh, what's called a reaction time. And oftentimes if I have a student athlete or a parent that doesn't believe their uh, child should not be released back into play, I do something called the Dr. Fitz's concussion crusher. And what I do is I have them warm up on a DynaVision board or a Synaptic or a Binobi, some sort of board. I do a one minute run and then I have them do 10 pushups. I do a one minute run and then they do 10 squats or 10 jumping jacks. And then I do a one minute run and they do 10 burpees. And if that student athlete's ready to go back to do a reconditioning uh, to get back to play, they'll get their numbers will get better, better, better. Oftentimes though, the kid that's not gonna do well is that they'll hit say at eight, uh, 0.8 seconds, and then they do their uh, jumping jacks. Now they're hitting at 1.1, and now I've had them do the, the burpees and they're hitting at three seconds, or they're throwing up in the waste paper basket. Pretty much that tells the parent that this child's not ready to go back to play. And I've just diminished that athlete in less than three minutes. And you mentioned Synaptic, DynaVision, uh, NeuroTracker. Explain what those are. And uh, those you... are all... Yeah, so they're, they're uh, different pieces of technical uh, equipment for eye-hand coordination. And what's really nice is I can't release an athlete to play until I know their reaction time. And I wanna know their reaction time on that objective view. And so Binovi, um, like I said, Synaptic, DynaVision, 
Um, and uh, there's one other out there, I can't think of it. Um, those are the ones that give me that kind of play. So an average athlete, when I'm working with an elite athlete, he should be able to have an eye-hand coordination, timing, probably 0 0.3, 0 0.4, something like that. So when I have an athlete that comes in with possible concussion and they're hitting like at 0.8, I already know I have a problem. And then I know how fast I can get these student athletes put back together just based off of all this stuff that I use and how long I've been doing it. So if I don't notice that they're getting incredibly better by three to five days, then I've got to look to something else. And that's when I found that some of these student athletes have undiagnosed thyroid difficulty. When do you start training them on the synaptic? Depends on symptoms again. So what happens is that in zero to three days, I have them resting and I do uh, a passive therapy in order to get their symptoms better. So that could be supplements, that could be eating, it could be sleeping. I use light therapy, I use PMF, I use HRV to see where their uh, parasympathetic sympathetic system's at. We use cranial sacral, we use dry needling. So we're doing all these things to pull them out of symptoms. And then within that three to seven to 10 day range, then I start doing a self uh, a symptom limiting uh, movement and a symptom limiting cognition to get them going. Explain about the light therapy. That sounds interesting. Sure. So within um, within optometry, uh, it would be known as syntonics. And so we use various different types of light um, um, uh, waves in order to calm the system up or to uh, excite the system. And so if I know that these people are having difficulty with the sympathetic system, then what ends up happening is I've got, to, I've got to work on that autonomic nervous system in order to get it to regulate better. So I use uh, heart rate variability and pulse ox to see where they're at. And then I might use um, light therapy and uh, different types of things and then check their symptoms afterwards and see if I'm making them better or I'm making them worse. Now, uh, if you're using blue light, how does that help versus using infrared or near infrared? So that would be, I also do um, low-level light therapy, which would be your infrared. And we can use uh, low-level light therapy on, say, the base of the brain or the occipital area or for headaches. Um, for syntonics, uh, we're looking, I'm looking at it more uh, autonomic nervous system. So what happens is blue light might calm the system down uh, and red light might rev it up. Now, it's a very simplistic look at it. So one of the things I do is I might use something called alpha omega, which are um, yeah alpha omega, which is red. And what happens is that stomps on the sympathetic system a little bit to wake it up. And then I might use something like a mu epsilon to calm it down. Now no one should be using without the appropriate education. So this is non this is not an educational moment here for anybody to do this. Light therapy can be very very. Um, stimulating and can affect that patient a lot. So people need to know what they're doing with that light therapy, whether it's low-level light therapy or syntonics. And what's dry needling? I don't do the technique. I have a person that does that. So I have an athletic trainer that's been trained uh, in dry needling and they use a particular um, neck and ear uh, pattern. And, and, and what, what, is, what, is, what is it? What is it dry needling is acupuncture. Oh, it's dry needling by uh, physical therapy and, at, and athletic therapy is dry needling, uh, acupunctures and acupuncturists. And explain how the exam that a neuro optometrist that's doing rehab, a rehab specialist, has a different exam 
than a regular optometrist? How the exam is different? What are the parts of the exam that you're doing that you're looking for that the general optometrist that's not trained in this isn't? Well, first of all, I've got to do a structure exam. So I still have to look and make sure there's not a tear in the retina. There's not a traumatic iritis. So I'm doing all that structurally. But secondly, I can do a five-minute neuro exam where I check their cerebellum, their frontal lobe, and their brainstem. And I'm going to see check their uh, gait and balance uh, and their cranial nerves in order to see if there's any type of problem. That's the difference. Uh, and then uh, what we have to do is figure out then what the appropriate therapy is to get that patient better. What is visual neglect? Uh, that's where someone can have an insult uh, to the brain, the right or left hemisphere, depending upon where that's at, uh, most notably the parietal lobe area. And what happens is that uh, even though they can see, let's use a, a bad example, let's say they have left visual neglect, um, they don't have a scotoma there, so it's not that it structurally isn't working. What happens is that um, they don't pay attention to that area. So that would be spatial neglect. And, you know, I know everybody's different, but what's the logical, you have a logical treatment order to doing therapy for these people, starting with fixations and looking at the parietal lobe. If you could kind of outline that a little bit for us. Uh, so first of all, um, I'll do the exam to make sure that there's not a structural problem. And so if you have a patient that has a third nerve palsy, I'm gonna treat them a little bit differently than someone who has a near point of convergence difficulty. But I wanna see whether or not their cerebellum, their brainstem and their frontal lobe are working well enough for me to work with it. If they're not, like when you have patients who have cerebellar disease or cerebellar atrophy, what might I do differently for that patient to get them better? And so I look at it from that, where in the brain is it being affected and what are the three things I can do to fix that, quote unquote. And one of them is I've got to look at the area of the brain. Can I stimulate the area of the brain directly? Do I stimulate the area of the brain indirectly? And how do I get fuel to it? How do I get blood supply? How do I get oxygen to it? That's the approach. So sometimes prisms are used or special lenses. How are prisms helpful? Uh, so when are they helpful? It, sure. So when we look at ourselves, I consider myself a light bender. So with plus lenses and minus lenses, I'm, I'm moving that light around. Uh, with prisms, I'm doing the same thing. And so uh, some of that is that we're bending that light in order to get parts of the retina to be stimulated because parts of that retina will stimulate then parts of that brain. So we have the ambient system prism use, which is stimulating parts of that brain and changing their posture and their gait. And then we have double vision, uh, that sort of thing, which is the focal aspect of prisms. And so we have a really broad range with prisms that we can use in order to get patients better. And how about tints? How are they helpful? Yeah, so once again, light bending, right? So what we're doing is we're trying to decrease the, the light from being as stimulating to the eye and the brain as it can be. So blue, um, uh, FL41, which is sort of a purplish blue, those tend to be more effective in helping our traumatic brain injury patients get better and tolerate light. And do you ever use occlusion? I use occlusion all the time, but I don't use a full occlusion. We can use spot patching. We can use, uh, we can use occlusion on the side and the periphery. So that's a whole big technique on spatial and how you get rid of, say, double vision or how they're working in their space. And you do a number of eye exercises, starting with the periphery, coming closer as they get better 
to help people improve in, in this area. If you could just name maybe a couple of the exercises that are done typically in neuro uh, optometry rehab. Well, I do a lot of yoked prisms and then I do eye-hand coordination with yoked prisms. So that's how I'm changing their space. And using, uh, how about, uh, do you ever use strobe with, with a concussion patient? Or that's no, not, that, that not is, right away. That, that's going to be one of their ending ones. If I put a strobe on them too soon, uh, I can make them worse. Uh, but yes, yeah, so the um, uh, Synaptic uses has uh, strobe glasses. We use them a lot. We use them more in our sports vision performance than we do in concussion management. And you mentioned some about functional medicine a little bit. Let's talk about some of the, what kind of diet you may put these people on to help them recover better. We talked about omega-3s. How about like curcumin, anything like that that may be helpful? Well, first of all, I got to get them into more protein. So they want to reduce their sugar, their carbohydrates, alcohol, caffeine. Uh, and then what we want to do is treat them a little bit like a migraine patient in bed by nine, up by six. And so we want to do a little bit more of an autoimmune diet or a keto diet. Have you noticed hyperbaric oxygen to be effective in any of these people? That's uh, been very effective in the beginning. It may not be long-term. And so I, I don't know what to even do with that statement because I have many patients that I've referred over for HBOT. It, it still means they need to have therapy. Um, so as a result though, uh, it does help the, the blood supply and helps change that for them, but it's not long-term. Right, it's just as one piece of the puzzle like meditation. Uh, is that ever recommended or any type of neuro and neurofeedback? Yeah, so uh, mindfulness and meditation are highly regarded within that brain realm. And so that's part of the sleep hygiene is talking to patients about how they do that. Uh, neurofeedback, um, I don't do that. That's not within my repertoire. And uh, we have one person in the area. Once again, it doesn't seem to be a sustainable therapy. It doesn't mean that people shouldn't go for it. One of the therapies that we do is I have something called Pinnacle, where I do vision, vestibular, auditory, and proprioception at the same time. So I have a chair that moves in a 360 degree uh, movement. And so as a result, what happens, I do immersion therapy with them. And what we're finding is that by moving that spinal fluid and lavaging that brain by tipping and moving that, and then using vision, vestibular, auditory at the same time, we've been able to get these patients better faster. And what have you seen which pharmaceutical therapy like Elevil or Ritalin or Lamicto? Have you seen this to be any, any, any help? And is it used, well, is, is it used where, where you're practicing within your group? Are you, is that something being used often? With my first comment would be medicine didn't get, you know, pharmaceuticals didn't get you into this and pharmaceuticals aren't going to get you out of it. But at the same point in time, I'm not the diagnostician for that. So I think withholding appropriate medication is abuse. So I would never do that. Um, but once again, I would recommend for those, uh, for anyone to turn over any rock and see any provider in order to determine how they can get better. And how about uh, going off the track just a little bit, essential oils, have you seen that? Progesterone being used? So sure, um, progesterone I've seen being used in nitric oxide along with uh, glutamate cream. I can't really talk to them, uh, speak to it about it much just because I haven't seen that much information on it. I just know that it's out there. And as far as aromatherapy or anything like that, you know, all those things can be effective to help people with their limbic system, um, but I'm not well-trained in that area. And how about when, does, when do you start with exercise? 
Uh, I would start them at exercise as soon as their symptoms are decreased. Not all symptoms have to go away. And then we can use like a treadmill test or a bike test to determine how their heart rate is affecting their headache. Ginkgo biloba, helpful? Okay, well, you have to find out what the standard of care in your area is. And so the standard of care in my area would be not putting someone on something like that that has uh, concussion, traumatic brain injury, stroke, or neurodegenerative affect unless that's been agreed upon by the MD. And we talked about the disadvantages of CBD. How about using it as treatment? Is, are they using that as treatment where you are? And does anybody use it as treatment for concussion patients? Sure, they do. I'm not sure that I'm the one that would be in favor of that. We have cannabinoid receptors in our brain. And so the problem is though, we don't have any way of knowing what target we're hitting. So that's the difficulty. So when I've had patients come in who are using CBD oil after they've had a concussion, oftentimes when I get them off the CBD oil, they actually do better. So I, I don't know what the connection is because we don't, it's not like I can draw a blood test and say, gosh, you're minus in this, so you need that. Um, CBD doesn't have that connection like that. Plus that it doesn't have the purity rate. So if you've got one bottle of CBD oil versus another, they don't match up. So we have some real problems with quality. So tell us a little bit about Nora. Uh, if somebody out there wants to find a Nora doctor, how could they do it? So neurooptometric rehab began in 1986 with one of the founding fathers uh, being Dr. Bill Padula. Um, and what ends up uh, Vince Vici, Dr. Vince Vici. Uh, you can go out on the website, the Neurooptometric Rehab Association. Um, we're across the board um, allied healthcare professionals. So we have athletic trainers, PTs, um, ODs, uh, OTs uh, in this group. And it's just a like-mindedness group trying to move patients forward with having good conversations about rehab. Dr. Vici is in New Jersey where I am. Yeah. So if someone wants to find out more about Dr. Fitzgerald, how could they do that? Sure, just use docfitzgerald.com or come visit me on my website. I also have a Facebook page, Train Your Brain to See Again, where we open up a discussion about concussion and different types of things. Um, I also have a website called eye2brain.org. So it's E-Y-E -E number two, brain.org. And what I have is I have various webinars, free material documents that people can use for concussion and brain uh, management. Well, I want to thank the amazing Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald for joining me today. She's a wealth of information. She's a world leader in this area. So really, we really thank you to educate the public out there so they understand a little bit about some of the subspecialties in optometry and really how smart some of our optometrists really are. So I want to thank you for helping so many patients, educating me and educating my audience. Thank you, Dr. Fitzgerald. Thank you. I appreciate it, Carrie. You have a great day. And until next time, this is Dr. Kerry Gelb for the Open Your Eyes podcast. Fitting multifocal contact lenses presents a big opportunity to meet patient needs while growing your practice. Alcon is your partner, not only with our innovative portfolio, but through e-learning. Learn to enhance your multifocal strategy today with the Alcon Experience Academy. Since I bought Safe For You, my dad makes me clean his boat. It's natural y es un buen producto. Every time I go back to school, my mom always makes sure that I have my Safe For You products. I bring extra and my roommates certainly don't mind. It's a good thing I had Safe For You. 
to clean up after this little guy. When my hands get dry, I like to wash them with Safe For You. And most importantly, the reason why I buy Safe For You is because it's safe for me and you. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald. In this episode, Dr. Fitzgerald takes a deep dive into how brain trauma can affect the visual system and strategies used to help concussion patients. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments. Take two. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald. In this episode, Dr. Fitzgerald takes a deep dive into brain... Cut. Take three. Welcome back to part two of my interview with Dr. Deanne Fitzgerald. In this episode, Dr. Fitzgerald takes a deep dive into how brain trauma can affect the visual system and strategies used to help concussion patients. If you're new here and you like our interviews, press like, subscribe, share, and hit the bell to get notifications of great new interviews. And please leave comments.